watchers in the fourth dimension. I heard a noise. Who is it? Don't damage my friends. I will damage yours. Maybe trading comes in useful sometimes, Doctor. Whatever you say. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Julie. And I'm Alan. And it's time for our once a season Big Finish bonus episode. And this time we're discussing Return of the Cybermen from the Lost Stories range. And as you've just heard, we're once again joined by author, podcaster and friend of this podcast, Alan Seiler. Welcome back, Alan. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks so much. It's always a pleasure to have you. It is always a joy to be with you guys. Well, as this is a bonus episode, we're going to skip the mail and head straight behind the scenes. If you listened to our last regular episode, you'll recall that scriptwriter Jerry Davis took Revenge of the Sidemen through quite a lot of iterations during the scripting process before script editor Robert Holmes finally rewrote the serial for its televised version. Well, Return of the Sidemen is based on one of those earlier script treatments as originally written by Jerry Davis. Big Finish brought in John Dorney to adapt the scripts for audio, and he's quite the regular for the company, having written over 90 audio stories for them and also having acted in a fair few too. In adapting this, Dorney had access to the original scripts as well as a slightly different version that had been published in Dreamwatch Bulletin back in 1992. The final script that Dorney produced had to be submitted to the BBC so that they could review it and ensure that it was sufficiently different from the broadcast version of Revenge. This audio is also notable as the first appearance of Sarah Jane Smith on audio since the conclusion of Big Finish's Sarah Jane Smith range back in 2006. As Elizabeth Sladen sadly passed away in 2011, the part was recast with her daughter Sadie Miller in the role. Likewise, original Harry Sullivan actor Ian Martyr very sadly passed away back in 1986, and so that part is recast for the first time here with Christopher Naylor in the role. Naylor is a bit of a big finish regular, having appeared in a plethora of productions in numerous different roles, playing everything from a recast version of The Evil Christmas Tree, aka Centriel, from the Daleks' master plan in a fourth Doctor story, to an Ogron in an eighth Doctor story, and of course, several upper class twits. So he is perfect for a recast of Harry. <laughs> And Don is not here to hear about him being the Christmas tree? I know, he's missing out. That's amazing. The story was recorded on the 4th and 11th of November 2019 and was very much the Nicholas Briggs show. He directed the story as well as provided both the music and sound. And for those unfamiliar with him, Nick Briggs is one of the executive producers at Big Finish and also provides a huge amount of voice work for the TV show, including the Daleks, Cybermen, Judoon and many others. Now, of course, he provides the Sideman voices here too. Where we do have a non-Nick Briggs name is with the producer. This one was produced by David Richardson, who acts as the producer for the entire Lost Stories range that Big Finish put out. The completed product was released for digital download on the 17th of March 2021, with a physical CD release following soon after. So with that... Let's jump right in and discuss it. And let's just go with the elephant in the room. Sarah Jane Smith, Harry Sullivan, the recast. What do we think? 
I actually think that both of them are fairly successful. I would love to see a further Fourth Doctor and Sarah Jane series happen. She doesn't sound exactly like her mother, but I don't think that it would have been right for her to try and do so. But I think that she captures the spirit of the character pretty well. And meanwhile, I think that Naylor does a really good job of Harry Sullivan. I enjoyed both of them. I agree, because Naylor was trying more to be like Harry. I agree with that, yeah. He pulled that off very well. I'm like, upper class wit, 100% tracks. <laughs> and... As for Sarah Jane's character, it was one of those, it was noticeable, but I think you're right. There are a couple instances where you hear it, just a couple of the phrases where you're like, oh, there it is. Knowing the background and knowing why they had to recast and all that kind of stuff, it does seem like it was done in better taste this way. Mm -hmm. I agree. It's interesting how this is the second time Big Finish have recast a beloved character with the child of the original yeah. actor. They also brought in Caroline John's daughter as yeah. Liz Shaw. I was going to mention that same thing. And in all honesty, I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with that policy. Just bringing in the child of someone because their parent was the original actor doesn't necessarily make sense. And mm -hmm. in all honesty, I think it works better with Liz than it did here with Sarah. And I think part of why I buy it a bit more with Liz is that she is paired up with a recast third doctor. Whereas here mm. you have Tom Baker and I think Christopher Naylor does a better job of actually imitating Ian Marta, whereas yeah. Sadie is very much trying to be her own thing while kind of channeling the spirit of the character rather than imitating. And that just takes me out a little bit. If you had a recast Fourth Doctor, I think it would work a bit better for me. Well, to be fair, we do have a recast because it's basically a character played by a 25-year-old who was recast by an actor as a 90-year-old. That's fair. He sounds less like the fourth doctor than I think Sadie sounds like Sarah Jane. Yeah. And then if you think about there's some other recasts that are really well done. You mean over the course of this story? No, I'm talking about just in general across Big Finish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I was going to say it is sad to hear Tom sounding so old. I'm still not in love with Tom Baker, so I'm like, eh, he's an old man now. Okay. <laughs> For me, part of it is when I've listened to Big Finish in isolation, it's been less noticeable to me. But as we are working our way through the fourth Doctor era, I've been watching and thus hearing Tom's voice when he was, I don't know what he was, 35, 30 to 35 in the role originally versus now. It is really noticeable. He still obviously channels himself. You know, the best recast is for the Cybermen, because Nicholas Briggs, man, does a much better job than whoever originally did the voices of the Cybermen. <laughs> That's the one who wins. Absolutely. Yeah, Big Finish here clearly decided to go all out on actually giving the Cybermen proper Cyberman voices rather than something that's a tiny bit modulated and at times they barely bothered with in Revenge. Right, but it's interesting that they didn't go the route of trying to match the presentation of the Cybermen in the televised version. Big Finish walks a line of when to channel and when not to channel because at the same time they channeled the music and in the interviews specifically said, yes, I wanted to use a lot of synth because that was the original. I was like, oh, why did you have to go and do that, Nick Briggs? Hmm. It's interesting you say that, Julie. And before we get too far into the music, I do want to point out on the cover, I did notice they used the Invasion Era Cybermen rather than the Cybermen from Revenge. Yes. 
Yeah, I noticed that. And I thought that was an interesting choice. I like that because I think they're much better looking than the ones from Revenge. Yeah. But in terms of the music, Alan and I were having a conversation via text today. And honestly, firstly, Julie, we both worried about potentially upstaging you by talking about music because we know that's your thing. <laughs> Personally, to me, it sounded a lot more, and I realize I'm far better versed in Big Finish than you are, but to me, it sounded like some of the scores for the earlier Big Finish serials, and I'm particularly thinking Sword of Orion, which was an Eighth Doctor Cyberman mm, story, yeah. than it did Revenge. Yeah, totally. I totally agree with that. I could kind of see how they were channeling it, but it wasn't quite there for me. It really felt like something else. It was partially a channeling, but partially, I think the conversation that he had was the fact that they originally were going to do revenge with Dutters and they listened to it, decided not to go that way. And that's when they hired in, what's his name? I always forget. Carrie Blyton. Yes. And that's how they got brought in because they wanted the more synth. So I think that it was partially to sound a little bit more like, but also since revenge went in that direction of adding the synth, they went and added the synth here as well. So I don't know that it's necessarily trying to imitate so much as to follow the heart of what they were trying to do. Here's the thing that to me stands out so drastically. First of all, I love the original Blighton score. I think it's fantastic. It's one of my favorites, particularly from that season. I didn't enjoy this one as much, but the big difference is that in this story and in a lot of Big Finish, the incidental music is constant. Like it never stops. It's under every bit of dialogue. And that's so anachronistic with how the show was done in the 70s. And for that reason alone, it stands out to me as a score that's completely different than what was done or what was intended in the original. Yeah. Although to be fair, when you actually look at the time of it, there's only 14 minutes of music over the course of what, 120 yes. minutes or maybe not that much, but however long this whole thing took. So there's a bit, but this is better done than some other Big Finish. But I will say the best way to listen to Big Finish is always with headphones on mm. because Big Finish just does sound like no one else does sound. That is 100% correct. And doing it with headphones on yeah. is the only way to get that. And if you're not, yeah, don't do that. Yeah. I would agree with that. <laughs> yeah, totally. We've talked about the recast. We've talked about the music. We've talked about Tom sounding older. It sounds like it's time for us to talk about the story itself. Oh my God, there's another woman. There's two other women. I know. Oh my gosh, it was so exciting. Two other women, but one actress. Right. But that was the first thing I was going to say is that, you know, the one thing that this does better than the televised version is it actually has other women in the cast. That's amazing. And I remember when we were talking about the behind the scenes piece, I did talk about how there was this Anitra character in one of the earlier drafts. And so I'm really glad that she made it into this yes. version. I was a little disappointed that they didn't go with Jerry Davis's idea of having Kelman as a woman. Yeah. Kelman was interesting. He was almost a completely different character the way he ended up. Well, he was a completely different character the way he ended up on television as opposed to this earlier draft. I so appreciate it, though. The whole storyline of him trying to help the Vogons and everything was just so convoluted and really not very well put together. The fact that in this instance, they made it just about him wanting it for himself I think is actually a better motivation than this weird convoluted plot line that they had going yeah. on. Yeah, in Revenge, it felt like they were trying to make him 
redeemable. Yeah, you know, the whole thing was he was secretly trying to destroy the Cybermen. Here he's just a dick who's in it for himself, and that's all he wants, <laughs> is he wants the money and he wants to get out of there. And he doesn't care right. who gets killed in the process. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. But when you're talking about motivation, another thing to me that is a big difference between the two different versions is that in this one, the Cybermen want to blow up an asteroid because it's got a lot of gold and it could potentially be used as a weapon. In the televised version, the gold had already been used as a weapon against them and had almost wiped out the Cybermen. So to me, the Cybermen's motivation for getting rid of Vogon was much stronger and much more defined than what we hear in this version. Yeah, although they do say that they have an aversion to gold and this is one of the last yeah. remaining sources of gold in the galaxy. Right. So I kind of get the motivation. They just want to stamp it out before it becomes a problem. Exactly. Whereas in the other one, they're basically fighting for their survival. Yes. Now, I will say having that story where they have been in a war with Earth or whatever, and the humans developed a way to weaponize gold against them. I think that's fantastic. I will say that the name of the weapon, Glitter Gun, is like the stupidest thing <laughs> I've ever heard. It sounds like something Mark Boland would have used on stage. <laughs> and the first time I ever heard that line, I thought, that is fucking dumb. <laughs> At least we don't have that in this one, but I just think that it was a better motivation for them. That's fair. What I did like, though, is I liked getting rid of the Vogons entirely because that whole civil war thing that they were have going on, yeah, I yeah. was not invested in at all. Understood. And then when you have the miners on there, you want to immediately know, okay, miners, gold, that checks out. That makes sense. And then you hear that they've been stranded there. Well, we've had those type of situations before. I think of like enemy of the world when you have those people trapped underneath the ground forever and a day. So it's something that you can immediately connect with them, know that they're in a tough position, but you don't need a big backstory to them. Right. So I thought that that was brilliantly done as opposed to bringing in these other characters and are in a civil war. I'm like, I don't really care. Like, can we just move on? I was very disappointed with the miners, how they made them South African. Whereas in the original, they were meant to be called Evans, Jones and Williams. So, you know, the Welsh agenda yeah. got cut here. And personally, mm. I'm devastated as someone whose heritage <laughs> is half Welsh. I get really tired of these weird castings based on a nationality because putting them in certain roles, because this came up in the Santaran experiment, it makes people align certain things. Like in the Santaran experiment, you didn't really care for those guys. So now you're not happy with them. And then in this one, you don't like most of the miners. So, okay, let's be mad at them here as well. And I know that, you know, the whole apartheid thing, Anthony, we could go on our little history rant if we so choose. I'm good. But this is a big finish one. This is not, let's right. just make them generic characters as much as possible. Mm. Generic British voice, whatever you want to do. Welshman. <laughs> okay, fine. Welshman. <laughs> That's just a trend I'm seeing. And if I see a lot more South Africans who I dislike, I'm just going to be really upset. <laughs> I think it's a while before we get more South Africans. So I think you're good, Julie. And also listeners, I really truly mean that I think it's a problem that they're typecasting certain nationalities. Yeah, I would agree with that. Right. As long as you ain't going to play Sun City, I think it'll be okay. <laughs> Looking at you, Black Sabbath. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I notice is that there are at least three mentions of old girl in this one. Yes. I think I counted three, though. 
I'm sure there was more than that, but there were also a lot of old boys. I like to have a count of all the old references because of my dislike of Harry. And so I create my own metrics and then Don gets mad. (laughs) (laughs) I did sort of like that, though, because it helps you connect with Harry Sullivan. It's so endemic of who he is. I think that it was necessary to keep that sort of personality, especially in a recasting. They also did a very good job of keeping... One of the things that we noticed in Revenge of the Cybermen was keeping the Doctor away from the two companions so that the two companions could have some time to gel. They did that here as well, in a different way, in a different manner. And they still have the bickering, and they really still don't like each other. And that's wonderful. And then they're more or less missing for the entirety of part three. That's the Doctor show. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Because when you're talking about this version having two additional women characters, I was going to say earlier, you couldn't have less. But you actually could because Sarah Jane is missing from an entire episode. So there could have been less women in this version than there was in the Telefy's version. The thing that I have to say that helps them a bit is that in part four... She is the one who figures out how to use the Cybermats against the Cybermen and actually does something. Whereas in Revenge, she is just literally the damsel in distress stuck on the ship. Mm -hmm. I will throw that in there. She wasn't as much in part three, but she had a huge part in part four. Agreed. I want to talk about some of the other characters, particularly Stevenson. Mm. I know in the interviews, the actor said that when he read the script, the character came across as a bit more rough and ready than the, I think he said, the rather clipped, RP-accented version that you see on screen in Revenge. And I wasn't sure how I really felt about Stevenson having a bit of a South London accent. Okay, that's getting too much into accents that I can't quite necessarily (laughs) talk around. Is that more because you're so familiar with Revenge? For decades? Yes, probably. Is it just a familiarity thing? I think it probably is. Yeah. I've only watched it once, and I don't think I'll watch it again. (laughs) Sorry, Anthony. I mean, I know what you gave it. I know what I gave it. I don't really blame you. (laughs) The other thing I really wanted to touch on, and I know we talked a little bit about the voices, but the Cybermen in general. Mm. Firstly, I love that they remembered in this version of the script that they don't like radiation. That's a nice throwback to the 10th planet. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. The other thing, this lot are far less emotional than the ones we get in Revenge. They're banging on about mm-hmm. logic the whole time. Right. And they're kind of jobs worths as well. At the beginning of part two, there's that whole bit of we weren't ready for you. You've disrupted our plan. We have to call the cyber leader now. Right. I thought that was so interesting. I thought it was brilliant and actually follows the right bit of logic that Cybermen should follow. And then Mm -hmm. also when you get to the point when they're talking about how they know they're going to die and they're like, but it's going to be the best thing for our race, which is a very logical thing to do. Right. I loved that aspect of it. I also love the fact that they were also brilliant enough that okay, these Cybermen are going to be hidden in boxes, but the Cyber Leader is going to be hidden in a wall. Exactly. Brilliant. (laughs) No one would think of that. Here's the thing. I did a little reading up on Revenge and Return jointly, and when Jerry Davis started the script, I don't even know that Tom had been cast yet, or if he had, they may not have even started filming. Anyway, he didn't really know how Tom was going to be playing the Doctor, so he basically wrote a second Doctor script. 
because that's what he knows. That's when he worked on the show. And that's why the 500 Year Diary makes a couple of appearances. Without the changes in the script where we get all of the Vogon stuff and all the other stuff that was added in, this felt so much like Moonbase yeah. or Wheel in Space. Mm -hmm. It had a very kind of like a throwback feel to it, but especially in those scenes where they're trying to find the cyber leader when it turns out that he's like in a closet or whatever it is. I don't remember, but it was so much like there was a Cyberman hiding in the medical bay in moon base. And it was just that same kind of thing where he's just there. He's just kind of lurking and he's just there that they just don't realize he's there the whole time. And there's one in the spacesuit here. Right. And mm -hmm. you even get that momentary base under siege part in part two once the cybermen start waking up again and there's that whole they're breaking free and they're trying to keep them in the area that they were in that felt very Troughton era yeah mm -hmm. absolutely i enjoyed that so this could have been a lost second doctor story yeah oh imagine this but instead with jamie and zoe exactly yeah i'm on board yeah i mean <laughs> More Jamie and you're on board, Julie. Come on. Well, sure, of course. I'll leave Zoe for the men. The other thing that I liked is I already touched upon not having that whole convoluted Vogon thing. But the other thing that I liked is that their only plan was to send the nerve nerve ship into the asteroid. There was no going down to the surface and planting these bombs, which <laughs> never made sense. <laughs> Because they also went down there onto the asteroid with gold on it. So I'm like, okay, that right. is a very dumb thing to do. So <laughs> I really enjoyed that. And then also, if you think about it, we just sent something up into space to change the course of an asteroid. So it checks out, right? Of course. The one deficiency that this version of the script has that I think is the better in Revenge is that there's no reason in this one for the doctor to declare that Harry Sullivan is an imbecile. <laughs> <laughs> I had money on Julie mentioning that and being disappointed about that. So, um, Alan, you've surprised me. I don't get to cross that off my bingo card tonight. Beat me to it, Alan. Oh, I'm so sorry. I agree, though. I did like how they just plan to smash it directly into the asteroid. It makes so much more sense. No nonsense about sending people down with bombs. Right. We talked about the, the Vogons a little bit. Another thing that I found out today when I was doing my little backstory studying is that they somehow just suddenly realized, holy shit, we have more money than we thought we had. So then they're like, hey, let's throw in a new set of aliens. Let's do a lot of location shooting, blah, blah, blah. I do like the addition of the Vogons. But if they had just kept it as the Vogons realize that they are in threat because the Cybermen are going to blow their planet up or whatever. You didn't need all the Civil War stuff. It was padding. It was. It was totally padding. And it was basically padding of the long-haired faction versus the bald-head faction. And it just was silly. But I do like the additional layer of the Vogon element. Just not as much as they went into it, I guess. Well, I just didn't particularly care for the design of the Vogons. I also mentioned that they had a little bit of an Asian feel to them, which feels a little yeah. bit off. And that's why at least they still had some people on the asteroid. So they had the miners, but there is still some issues right. there. But I also think it makes sense that them being stuck there for 25 years and then they became idol worshippers. I actually am curious yeah. if you think that the idol that they worship was a Vogon. Ooh. Oh, I didn't think about that. I was just thinking that whole angle seemed weird to me. Yeah, not much was done with it. No, not at all. 
It was just thrown in for whatever reason, but I did not think about the headcanon connection to the Vogon. That's kind of cool. Because then you think of the Vogons could have still fought the Cybermen, maybe all of them completely lost. Maybe. And then the miners came in because the Vogons were no longer there. And then after they lost all of their ships and were stuck there and marooned there, they then started to worship the Vogons. Hmm. That's my headcanon. I like that. There you go. I like it. The interesting thing that I found was I knew from when we did Revenge that the earlier versions of the script had Kelman having betrayed the miners. And in part three, when we first get down onto the asteroid and you see Kelman and the miners interacting, he comes across as being friends with everyone on the asteroid. And I'm going, wait, what? And of course, <laughs> as it pans out, he betrayed them from the beginning. And that part of the story was in this version. So I was glad that it was wrapped up a little and he wasn't totally obvious about it from the moment he gets down on there. He's not totally moustache twirling, but I'm very glad that they kept that piece. Mm, I knew yeah. because he wouldn't have been doing all of this stuff on Nerva and then just be handing out food down there if there wasn't really a reason. To get gold. So <laughs> fucking dumb. I oh, love sorry. gold. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first time we've referenced Austin Powers in this in a long time. Yeah. It's funny because the whole time I was listening to that, it kept reminding me of the Renaissance, the band Renaissance, not the time period Renaissance, their song <laughs> Midas Touch. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Anyway. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting plot element. I would have liked more of the miners, to be honest. I felt like they were in it for mm -hmm. yes. maybe half an episode. And we hear a bit about this culture that's developed with this idol worship, with them skinning lizards and having to wear goggles for the light and what have you. But I would have liked more of it. It felt very half-baked. Exactly. So big finish, if you're listening, spin-off. Yes, we want more, please. Hmm. I don't know. The Adventures of the lizard skinning Vogon worshippers. I don't know that that's going to fly, but... Hey, Big Finish produced plenty of shit for a very niche audience. Boy, that is the truth. <laughs> we will never cover the Lady Christina Chronicles on this podcast. Oh, fuck me. God. <laughs> but then we could also make it like the Scorchies. Somehow. Yes. I don't know. Mm. It'll be fun. Oh, I love the Scorchies. <laughs> there was still a part, though, where Harry was proving to be useless... So when Sarah Jane is actually figuring out what to do with the Cybermats, Harry's just like, oh, I guess we have nothing to do. There's nothing that we can do. And we're just stuck here. And Sarah Jane is just like, oh, please, buddy. Right. Get shit done. <laughs> My favorite line is, don't you shush me. <laughs> no, that was the doctor. Because when it was the doctor getting back onto the ship and he just goes onto this rant and it's like, no, be aware of your surroundings, doctor. Yeah. In all honesty, part four, I felt was really tedious. Agree. They could have done certain things faster without going in as much detail. And if I recall correctly, when Jerry Davis gave the individual episodes titles in his script, part four was called The Battle for Nerva. And this felt less like a battle and more like a very light skirmish. Yeah. I think there's a brilliance behind what Sarah Jane does because it's the creation of the Cybermen attacking the Cybermen and destroying them. I think that that is brilliant and they should have stuck with that more so than anything else. Just from the perspective of how else are you going to do the gold, all that kind of thing. Having Harry go to the gyro room, I love talking about the gyro room, <laughs> was just unnecessary. That aspect of it was, I don't know. I like it just from the fact that Sarah Jane got to kick butt. So <laughs> I was happy. And it has been yeah. a while in the show since she's really done that. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. These men who don't know how to write for women, it's not that hard. With part four, there's one more thing on the music I wanted to touch on. And Julie, you won't be in a position to appreciate this yet. But Alan, I know you are. There are times that I thought that the music was very season 18 or season 19. Yeah, I can see that. Nick Briggs alluded to in the interviews how originally Carrie Blyton was assisted in the score by Peter Howell, who would go on to be the composer for Doctor Who in the 80s. So I'm wondering if that was a very deliberate reference to Peter Howell's work on the show at a later time. I think so. I really do. Because he talked about that a lot, about how I think it was basically that Peter Howell just added embellishment. I don't think that he really assisted the score that much. He just added some bells and whistles. Bells and whistles, exactly. And so, yeah, I did kind of notice that, too, in listening to this one. Yeah. I will say in that interview, and this drove me bonkers, Nick Briggs was talking about the various keyboards that he was using, and he referenced the Moog, M-O-O-G. It's pronounced Moog. Oh, my God. So that kind of drove me crazy. Damn it, Nick. Damn it, Nick. You should know better. (laughs) As I was just happy that there was a reference to Colonel Bogey's March, because that's the thing that I get happy about. (laughs) Spaceball reference, maybe? I don't know. (laughs) There are literally three more things I want to talk about. Firstly. Okay. The TARDIS being stashed in Stevenson's cabin because he mistook it for a portaloo or a porta potty. Oh my I God. intended to bring that up and I completely forgot. That was wacko. I wasn't there yet and I thought that was so funny. The other thing goes to how John Dorney wrote this so it can basically entirely slot in the place of revenge. So it starts out with them materializing on Nerva and ends with them getting the message from the brigadier. Yes, exactly. I did think that whole sequence about them eating the crew person's food was just weird and unnecessary. I thought it was funny. Okay, good. I mean, I thought it was weird, but I thought it was funny. And to be honest, after coming out of Genesis of the Daleks, you would probably also be really hungry. That is very true. I didn't think about it in that sense, but you're right. So never mind. I I retract what I just said. (laughs) (laughs) Opinion redacted. The other thing I thought was interesting as I was doing some research into this John Dorney originally wrote an ending where effectively it developed the continuity so that both this and revenge happened. He wrote two pages of script in which the Time Lord from the beginning of Genesis of the Daleks shows up and basically says, because of what you did in Genesis of the Daleks, time is being rewritten and the adventure you've just had isn't going to have happened. And this version of you is going to cease to exist and a different Mm. Doctor will live out a similar adventure, but it will be slightly different. Hmm. And he also made reference to things like a later version having to live out two different versions of the same story, intended to be human nature between the novel and the televised version. Mm -hmm. And it went into all these little bits of detail. And John Dorney mentioned, well... He said on Twitter, I think, he said, we uh, didn't do this because it was just too silly. I'm pretty glad they didn't. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Too much, too much there. Yeah. One thing that I found interesting is that Lester and Anitra both survived. Yes. So the Mm -hmm. commander is not left by himself. Right. Mm, Yeah. And that's nice. There are three left alive at the end. And yeah, they're going to get Nerva back up and running and rescue the miners and all that good stuff. Mm hmm. All right, before we score this, I do want to ask, 
Do you think this is a better story than Revenge of the Cybermen? And do you prefer it to Revenge of the Cybermen? Yes and yes. (laughs) Hands down. (laughs) Hmm. Everyone who's listened to previous episode on Revenge of the Cybermen, I was not a fan of that one. And the main things that I like most is I like getting rid of the convoluted civil war. I like that Sarah Jane is not the damsel in distress. And I like that the Cybermen are actually logical and aren't being really kind of crazy and actually emotional. So those three things right there are already going to just push it over the top and be better than revenge. Alan, how about you? Well, I tell you, I'm not sure. I'm kind of torn on this one because I think that revenge has a unique feel to it. And I don't think that it could have existed anywhere other than in season 12. The return version feels too much like a second Doctor story. I think that listening to it on its own, it just sounds too much like it belongs to a different era than the one that they're trying to depict. So for that reason, I kind of prefer revenge, even though I think this might be a slightly better story, if that makes any sense. It does. And I can kind of see both perspectives. I think for me, I prefer this as a story. I think it's a better story. It is cleaner. But would it have worked in season 12 when I think the storytelling was evolving to be in a different place? Yeah. I can see why Hinchcliffe and Holmes thought that this wouldn't suit where they were taking the show. Yeah. But what they ended up putting out was candidly not great. I would rather have something that does simple well than something that tries to be more and does a really shoddy job with it. At the same time, listening to this one, you know that it would have been a studio story. Yeah. And I think that the one thing that you can say about Revenge is that the location shooting that they did is really, really beautiful. So I would hate to have lost that, even if it did mean you get Vogon Civil War silliness with it. And even if the location filming was cursed. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Which makes it even better. (laughs) It's an interesting thing because I don't necessarily mind set work. Again, one of my favorites that I always go back to is, except I always forget the name of it because I remember what we called it on our episode because the episode title was Susan Loves Scissoring. Oh, The Edge of Destruction. (laughs) Yes. Sense of destruction, all TARDIS work, only on the TARDIS. And so that doesn't always make or break it for me. Oh, no, it doesn't at all. I'm just saying Mm -hmm. that the location that they used in Revenge was so cool. It was so visually striking. Had Revenge never been made and this had been made instead and it was all in the studio, I would never have even thought about that. But I thought the location work in Revenge was really gorgeous. And I agree. Wookie Hole looked great. Yeah. I mean, I still think a version of this with the extra funding, they could have done the stuff on the asteroid on location. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but there's just not as much of it. That's true. All right. With that, let's go ahead and rate this one. And Alan, as our guest of honor, would you like to go first? Okay. Well, I think it's a good script. I think it makes sense. I think there's a lot of logical choices in it that may have got lost in the numerous rewrites before it actually hit the airwaves. And I think the Cybermen are pretty well used. I think they're well portrayed, but I do feel like this is a second Doctor story that Tom Baker happens to be acting in. And so I think I'm going to go 5.5 Cybermats. All right, Julie, let's, let's go with you next. 
All right. And just, sorry, before you start, just to remind anyone who wasn't listening, Julie gave Revenge of the Cybermen 2.5 out of 10. <laughs> it's important to remember that. <laughs> I would say it can only go upwards from there, but you never know. But in this instance, it can. I enjoyed this so much better. As most of you know, if you've listened to any of our previous bonus episodes, I adore Big Finish audio just because they do audio so well. So just listening to it is an experience in and of itself. As much as I didn't want that much synth, it was well done synth. So I cannot complain all that much about what was used. Sarah Jane actually had things to do. Harry even was given some things to do, whether or not he should have. I don't know. We have more women involved, which is nice. Just having Anitra even more so than the other one, it was very nice to have because she was pretty key in a lot of the plot lines. So there's a lot of things that I like about it, but you know, it's still a Cyberman story where it's still not the best thing in the world. Was not sitting on the edge of my seat during this one, but I'm going to give it six and a half TARDIS porta potties out of 10. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was higher than I was expecting you to go, Julie. That's a big jump. It's a big jump. Wow. All right. Well, I gave Revenge of the Cybermen three and a half. And when it comes to return, to some extent, I agree with Alan. This feels too simplistic to slot easily into season 12. It does feel like a throwback to Troughton and those base under siege stories. That should hint why I like it so much. Yes. <laughs> that Good being point. said, I felt like the Cybermen were a lot better. They were at least logical and not overly emotional here. I did appreciate the more simplistic storytelling because it did mean that it was done relatively well. Unlike trying to put something more complex on screen in Revenge and doing a bad job of it. Mm. I would have liked more of the miners, particularly if it meant that part four could have been compressed a little. I felt part four was pretty padded and pretty dragged out in places. And I definitely found myself clock watching during that or even being distracted and having to actually do a little bit of work while I was listening because <laughs> it was struggling to hold Heaven my attention. Forbid. Overall, Yes, it's an improvement. It's still a long way off being perfect. I don't think that this storyline at all was the right thing for season 12. And so for me, I give this six and a half gyro rooms, which was what I was certain Julie would use, out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> I had it written down on mine as one of my options. Hmm. Before we sign off, Alan, where else can we find you? Well, all over the place. Yeah, you're doing a lot these days. Oh my God, I'm so insane. It's ridiculous. So I've just started two new podcasts. One is a Doctor Who one called Doctor Who A to Z, or the full title, Doctor Who Auton to Zygon. The first episode just went out. The second episode... Anthony is going to join me and we're going to review Jodie Whittaker's final episode. And then I also just started another little side project. It's called Alan's Record Bin. And it's just a 10 to 15 minute episodes where I just pull a song out of my pretty large music collection, talk about the song, talk about why it's important to me, and then play the song. Pretty quick, easy little episodes, but I think they're kind of fun. Give both of those a listen. You can find them both on Spotify. And your other projects, because I know there's another music podcast that uh, you have a very sexy British co-host on. 
Lies. Well, I thought the sexy British co-host would probably bring that one up. So I will say that there's another podcast that we have been going for almost a year now, and it's called Modern Musicology, and it covers all sorts of music topics, and it's really great. Go listen to it. And then I've got my other podcast. Fuck, that's four fucking podcasts. The other one is Earth Station Trek, and it's all about Star Trek. And you can find those on Spotify and Stitcher and Google and Apple and all those places. iHeartRadio, all that shit. And probably wherever you're listening to this podcast. Probably so. Well, go check Alan out. It's always a pleasure to have him on this show. We enjoy his company. We hope you enjoy him as much as we do. And if you do, go check out one, two, three or all of those, depending on how much time you've got on your hands. How do you have the time, Alan? Oh, pfft. Uh, who knows? I mean, well, you know, the one that's like 10 minutes, I can just like wake up at six in the morning and, and do one and then go back to bed or something, you know. You don't sleep, do you? Not as much as I should. I know that feeling. All right. Well, Alan, it has been a pleasure as always to have you on the show. It has been a joy. I really appreciate you asking me and I always enjoy chatting with you folks. And you know, I'm a regular listener because I love this podcast. So I'm always happy to be on. Again, thank you for coming back on. It's nice to have you a bit more regularly than once every doctor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With that, we are sadly out of time. All four of us in The Watchers in the Fourth Dimension will be back next time as we do our season 12 retrospective. But for now, as always, thank you so very much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Julie Filipek, Alan Seiler, and myself, Anthony Williams. This bonus episode, Lizard Skinning of Vogan Worshippers, was recorded on Wednesday the 19th of October 2022. If this is your first time listening in, all of our previous episodes are available through your favourite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D, and you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, less tends to be more. Just compare Revenge of the Cybermen to Return of the Cybermen for proof.